Oye Kopeng, and welcome to Miloda Air the Expanse, Doof Media's dive into James S.A. Corey's The Expanse book series. I'm Elliot Diebold. And I'm Ruben Morehouse. And this is a pilot uh, for a new show that we're running as part of our pilot season. Yes, uh, if you like this show and want to see it continue, leave your feedback on this pilot using the form that we've linked down in the show notes below. Yeah, uh, that forms one of the, the main metrics we're using to decide which show to go ahead with from the wide selection of pilot season shows. The eight pilots that we've almost finished doing, with this yes. being the penultimate <laughs> one. Um, anyway, so with, that, with all that said, should we get straight into it? Yeah, let's get into it. Tell uh, us, Elliot, what is this first seven <laughs> chapters of this book? Yeah, so it's like eight if you inc- include the prologue. We're, we're going up to the end of chapter seven of Leviathan Wakes, the first book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes, we start with the prologue, as you would expect. Uh, and mm-hmm. Good we... place to start. <laughs> that would come later. Uh, and we step into the mind of Julie Andromeda Mao, who has spent eight days stuck in a locker after her ship was boarded and, like, hostilely taken over. Um, mm. And I actually just want to read out the the opening line because yeah. I mean I I do this a lot in all of our things, but like I just really love this one. Um, yeah. So the the book opens with the Scopuli had been taken eight days ago, and Julie Mao was finally ready to be shot. Mm. Yeah, it's a good opening line, isn't it? It hooks you in so well. Like I I immediately every time I read this, it's just like wow, that's like, but why? Like it, it's a good mystery to be like, why would somebody want to be shot? Yeah. Uh, simple but effective yeah and the kind of framing device for the uh, prologue is we go through the days that julie has spent um so the first day a bit of what happened and then basically what has happened on each of the eight days that she's been trapped inside this locker and it basically just breaks her down <laughs> like we get to yep. see her break down until eventually we get to day eight and she's ready to just be shot like she would rather be shot than stay inside that locker yeah um, and then it gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, as all good stories do. Um, yeah. I, and I think part of the reason this prologue works so well for me is because it, it's not just like, like it, it's very Julie focused. Like, as you said, we mm. basically track these eight days as we watch Julie go from like someone who's fine to someone who's ready to kick open a locker and get shot for it. Um, yeah. But they also, like, the story already starts to creep in some of this, um, like, scientific realism that, that kind of defines a lot of it. Um, mm. Like, there's so much detail put into, you know, the way she's getting water while she's in this locker and stuff. Mm. Like, you know, the, the, there's, yeah. there's, there's that attention to detail and those little things about when the gravity turns on and off that are already giving you a glimpse as to some of the stuff this series is going to, you know, really pay attention to as it goes on. Yeah, it really does set up the kind of detail-oriented nature of James's writing. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, I mean, so obviously, just just in case anyone somehow doesn't know, um, James S. A. Corey is the pen name of uh, Ty Frank and Daniel Abraham, uh, who you know, two write, people write the writing so- one book, write the books together. Yes. What do they hold the pencil? Both hold the pencil at the same time. <laughs> uh, no, they share a keyboard like that scene. Oh yeah, um, like in NCIS. Yes, was it yeah, NCIS? Exactly. Yeah, I, I think knew it was. What you were talking yeah. about, of course, the classic scene. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, so one of them wrote. We'll get into this in a bit, but the chapters are from different perspectives, and one of them wrote one of the POV characters, and the other one wrote the other. Right? Uh, yeah, Daniel, I believe, wrote the Miller chapters and Ty mm. wrote the Holden chapters. And then obviously, you know, they traded them and, and proofread them and, right. and, and kept who it wrote, Who wrote the prologue? 
Oh, that just came about by itself. It <laughs> just spawned fully <laughs> fleshed out. Fair enough. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, we we kind of are going over Julie's thing. I I, I think it's it's so bleak. Like that's the thing that really mm. jumps out to me. Right? Is it's it's such a bleak start, and we see this prologue character, and they they start out being kind of like you know she, she you get the sense that she's a bit fierce. Like she kind of fights back with the crew. Um, yeah, I think it's like I think she goes over when they're first captured. How like the reason she's in this locker is because she fought back because she, you know, she has a history of I think she calls it like low gravity jujitsu, which again like mm. great little bit of world building. And, <laughs> and and even when she comes out of the locker after eight days, I think there's there's a line where she she comes up with her arms raised, either to look threatening or in the form of surrender, depending on whichever she thinks is going to be useful as she comes out. So yeah. like you get the sense, you know, she's ready to have a go if if, mm. if somebody wants to fight her, but as you said, it's bleak and she's just been broken down. Yeah, she's endearingly scrappy, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, so we, we recap those eight days. Uh, she manages to break out of the locker and basically, uh, instead of finding anyone who's going to fight her, she just finds the places have seemingly been abandoned. Uh, she can't find anyone, so she heads down to the engineering deck to see about, like, you know, whether she can actually restart this ship and, and get somewhere uh, to survive. Mm. Um and when she gets in there, there's like the the ship's nuclear reactor has some weird mud on it. And as she's kind of going to check out what the hell that mud is, um, there's a giant lump that comes across and it's the head of the former ship of the captain uh, melded into the mud. And the head says, help me. Yes. Um, great. <laughs> so not only was uh, Julie Mao, you know, kind of abused and then um, locked in a locker for eight days, she breaks out and runs into some kind of horrible... Flesh monster, which is presumably going to kill her or do something horrible to her. You don't really get to know what that is, but it's obviously not good. I mean, it's asking for her help, so it might be friendly. Oh, yeah, of course. And that always goes so well <laughs> in these situations. Um, yeah, but like, no, I love this as, as well. We already talked about the opening line, but as a closing line, like, I, like the final line is, I think, help me, the head said mm. or something. And you just sort of left sitting there like, what? And, and that's yeah. just the end. It's a great teaser. Yeah, I mean, it is oh, like a horror film, right? Like, that's <laughs> yeah. kind of the genre that this spaceship exists in. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's obviously not going to be good, whatever it is. But what, a, yeah. what an opener. I loved it. It was great. Yeah, it hooks you right in. Uh, I think this yeah. is a very effective prologue. I know the nature of prologues has been discussed a, a fair bit on, on the Doof Network recently, but I think this is a very good one. Um, fair enough and so then we move into our first uh chapter proper uh and this is from the perspective of james holden who is the xo which is like second in command uh of the canterbury a ship that you know <laughs> transports ice from the moons of saturn and brings it into the the asteroid belt where a lot of people live it took me so long to, to realize what xo meant i was so confused <laughs> by it and then i realized someone called him the executive officer at one point i was like oh okay that's what it's short for yeah. Um, yeah, so the job of the ship is basically the thing that they do in Futurama where they have to bring ice in to stop global warming, um, which is a good job. It's a noble <laughs> job. So um, I think this yeah, ice is actually just, just for drinking, um, mostly, I guess. Oh, and toilets and stuff. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Like, it's such a... I think it's a really good idea to have, like, you know, a main character whose job is just to bring ice in because the concept of having to, like, import water... <laughs> it, 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 like really sort of sets the stage for the series that we're that we're gonna see uh in a bit um yeah 
But yeah, basically, so as you brought up with the executive officer thing, the ship is kind of run pretty similar to how like, you know, nautical ships are run these days and have historically been run. Um, And this chapter kind of spends half of its time establishing Holden as a character and then the other half kind of introducing us to the solar system um, that this series is set in. Um, giving us yeah. like you know the core politics and structures of the you know what is now a solar system wide civilization. Yeah, it, it it doesn't seem to, or at least I I didn't feel like it dove too deep into the kind of political situation. I think the next chapter goes a bit more into that, but it it really does set up like here are some of the planets, that, or not even in a way that they're going to be important theoretically, just as like a look, we are now a spacefaring civilization. Um, it's very broad strokes is how I yes. describe it. Like it's like, yeah, it's like there's Mars, there's Earth, there's, you know, the belt. Uh, some people are out on, uh, you know, one of the moons of Uranus now. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's done in a quite clever way because these the prologue and then the first two chapters kind of represent these lenses that are slowly zooming in on the kind of political situation and, and the nature of the planets, right? And, mm. and Holden's story, at least in these first uh, few chapters of his that we see, doesn't actually... Um, need to you don't really need to know the politics of the situation because yeah. the impacts of what happens in Holden's story you feel the politics through Miller's story which where the politics are very relevant um, yeah so it's it's quite nice that it kind of takes this zooming in lens it doesn't give you too much information to bog you down as a lot of I think science fiction does tend to do uh, it yeah. just um, gives you enough so that you know what you need to it gives you a little bit of like driplets of info about oh, oh there's a uh, a Mormon spaceship that's going to sail out into the world endlessly, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, and and again, like I think one of the things they do is almost all these examples in the Holden chapter, especially, tie into what's happening at the time. Like, you know, it's not just an exposition dump. Um, yeah, exclusively, you know, it maybe yes. drags on a little bit more than it would halfway through the book, but yes, of course, you kind of need to. <laughs> yeah, like you need to do a bit of exposition, like front loading, but um. It's usually James ruminating on something in his head, and so they give you just enough that you can be like, "Ah, uh, okay, like I see why that's relevant to what James is thinking." Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, should we should we talk about Holden himself? Because obviously, <laughs> I think he's the, you know, he's the meat of the chapter. Uh, really, yes, he's, you know, teaching us about what he's us like to, to him and his relationships. Yeah. So, so I guess, what are your thoughts so far? Um, God, it's hard for me not to talk about him just in contrast to Miller. We'll get to that a bit <laughs> later, I think. But I, I do, on the whole, quite like him. I think he's he's a bit of a kind of goody two-shoes type, which is fine. Um, he, yeah, I don't know. I, I like him. I do find him, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make the comparison. I do find him slightly more boring than Miller because he's a bit of a, he's a bit of, um, he feels kind of reactive to the situations that he's in. He's and he's a bit of a, uh, like, kind of softly pushes for the things that he wants, but they don't really, things don't really go his way, and he kind of just kind of floats along with life a little bit. Um, and when he does break the mold of that, which we'll get to a little bit later, I feel like uh, it's not, <laughs> it doesn't do it very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, I think I know what you're getting at. We'll I definitely talk about yes, that. Yes, we'll touch on that. <laughs> I, I didn't dislike him, for sure, but I, I did find him, like, I... I I actually thought the strength of this chapter was he seems like the kind of person that's really good at working with all of his crew. Mm. His crew are all very interesting, compelling characters, and he kind of brings out the best in them, which I think is what makes him a good leader. Um, 
Well, yeah, I guess I think it makes him a good focus character because it means we get to see all of the characters that he interacts with in a lot of interesting depth, but I don't think it makes him a good, like, narrator kind of character, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Like, there's definitely a bunch of moments in this first chapter where it's like he, you can tell one of his strengths is, I guess, like, reading other people or, or, you know, knowing what to do, how to interact with them to get the best out of them, like you said. Like, uh, you know, he's got that interaction with Naomi um, where he pretty much knows he just needs to tell her, like, do whatever you think is best. And I, but I think the best one is when Captain McDowell calls him in, um, mm. and, and they, they do that sort of song and dance where Mill, uh, oh, sorry, Holden, um, has to pretend <laughs> that it's like, you know, he's like, oh, we have to go. And, you know, they sort yeah, of set that thing up. He has to where- pretend to be the stickler for the rules because that's clearly what Mc- he thinks McDowell is signaling, which seems to be correct. Like, he seems yeah. to get a very good read on this. He, he understands his place. He understands everything. He's, he's clearly quite a nice guy and quite a personable guy. So I like him. Just, mm. I think, I think he's a bit, uh, I don't know, a bit milk toast. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, again, like another example that I think comes up with that in this chapter is the whole thing with Arde, his, um, yes. Uh, she's essentially his fuck body at the moment. Yes. And he's the one who's really pushing for that to go to like full relationship. And she's the yeah. one saying that's, that's not what I want. So it sets him up as a bit of a like, hopeless romantic i guess yeah and i think the the thing that really like that would be fine in isolation but are the point that she makes is um no you know this this is just meant to be a a kind of fling situation because you clearly are in your element here and i am not going to be here for a long time so it's like i this shouldn't be like we shouldn't get too invested which i think is a like it's a relatively mature response from her is mature set of thoughts and uh I think Ade is correct on this and Holden kind of doesn't accept it. Like he, he <laughs> inherently rejects it a little bit, even though I think it's yeah. correct. And so again, it's to me this kind of thing of like, he's just, he just a little bit too much doesn't know what's going on. You know, he's like a little <laughs> bit too naive. Yeah. Not a huge amount, just just enough to make it kind of stand out. No, I I think that's a fair like read based on everything that's that's just happened. Um, and And yeah, and so then I guess... One other thing I, I quickly want to bring up as as we start to uh, move on from this chapter is I just, mm. I love the prose of this book series so yes. much. Yeah. Um, I really had to hold myself back from just pulling out constant quotes that didn't really <laughs> have anything for me to say about them except, oh, that's nice. Yeah. Um, so I've limited myself to one per chapter and this is this chapter's. Uh, well, before you read this one, it, we should mention it is like the start of this chapter as well, right? It's the yeah. first part of this chapter. So it didn't take you long before you pulled <laughs> no. out something that you really liked. <laughs> no, this is only about a paragraph in. Um, yeah. So Holden's kind of recounting the broad strokes history of how humanity got to where it is. Uh, and he notes that um, Solomon Epstein had built his little modified fusion drive, popped it on the back of his three-man yacht and turned it on. With a good scope, you could still see the ship going at a marginal percentage of the speed of light, heading out into the big empty. The best, longest funeral in the history of mankind. Fortunately, he'd left the plans on his home computer. <laughs> it's so good. Like, <laughs> the, it's, you know, the function of this from a perspective is telling us, hey, this is the invention that's kind of allowed this kind of travel and that's really defined a lot of the world, blah, blah, blah. And yes, that's obviously important information that needs to be imparted. But the way it's done is in such a like human way of like, of course, this engineer tested it and accidentally blew himself up and his ship <laughs> is now sailing off forever. And that's just kind of 
It's just like a great human, funny, interesting way of introducing these bits of information that are important to know for the world building. It kind of demonstrates the strength of the writing. Yeah, and and again, I think we're getting subtle characterization of of Holden in that. Like the best longest funeral in the history of mankind is a very you know naive, hopeless, romantic Holden thing to think. Whereas <laughs> yeah. you can tell you can tell Miller would just be tearing this guy to shreds in his yeah. narration. It, he is uh, Holden is he he likes to be a little bit theatric. You can kind of already yeah. tell because his uh, you know in this role with. Uh, in this interaction with uh, the captain McDowell, he is kind of playing, he is acting a part, right? And you can mm. tell that he kind of sees his function as a lot of, in a lot of ways, to kind of play the parts that he needs to play to get the best out of his crew. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, I want to kind of touch on the idea that we we learn about the the world a bit, and we learn that right when uh, Epstein built the Epstein drive or you know almost built the epstein drive i mean he built um, it he just didn't sure. survive i, I mean it. he built version one of it i suppose <laughs> um it, it, there was going to be a war between earth and mars uh because you know the, they had expanded to the inner planets and uh, we just got to the point where like we'd run out of space and this war isn't resolved it's deferred right because the epstein drive means okay now we can access a whole new region of space and so we spread out to that. And, and now we're in this point where these factions have sprung up and there, there was this seed of a war that was never resolved. And you can kind of tell that this is laying the groundwork for these places still have this feeling of being at war or about to be at war between them that never had any actual resolution. It was just kind of put off until later. And um, that's the kind of seed of the political world that we step into. It still feels like a little bit of a Cold War, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, um, or, or if not, maybe it didn't always feel like that, but it was that at one point, and then it kind of was deferred for a bit, but now it's we're getting to the point where resources are starting to slim out a bit. Like hmm. We're starting to slide back towards where we were 150 years ago when Earth and Mars almost went to war. Yes. Um, all, you, all you need is some Archduke uh, to get assassinated and things yeah, to exactly. really hit the fan. Um, and so speaking of, uh, the, the Canterbury, the ship that they're on gets, uh, you know, picks up an emergency broadcast signal, uh, and it is, you know, they're, they're obligated to go check it out by the, the nautical code of space. Um, so that they head off to do so. And, uh, the beacon is coming from the Scopuli, which of course was the ship that Julie was on in the prologue. So of course we're immediately like, oh, there's probably nothing there. Yeah. I think the, 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 well, I'm not even just going to say this chapter. The entirety of this first set of the book is building up tension for what's going to happen. <laughs> like, uh, the first two hold, uh, I guess the next Holden chapter, we'll talk about this more, but it really is all about these cliffhangers that build up the escalating tension yeah. that goes on throughout this book. Um, finding out, you know, we get this point where, the captain uh, tells them to go check it out and basically says, hey, if anything goes wrong, come back quickly. And we kind of immediately know, like James S.A. Corey is hanging a lampshade on this going wrong. <laughs> Obviously, it's going to go wrong because we're in like we're in a book and it's like a deserted spaceship, which is like the number one spooky thing out in space. And then, of course, we learn that it's the Scopuli and it's like, oh, yeah, this is actually just a horror movie plot that's being <laughs> unfolding right out in front of us right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah, so as you sort of said, that sort of cliffhanger uh, that they're about to go look at the Scopuli uh, mm. leads us into chapter two, uh, where we completely leave that all behind for now. And we jump into yep. the head of uh, 
Miller, who is yes. our detective working on the asteroid series station. Uh, so this asteroid has been spun up, so it has a bit of artificial gravity, and now has like 6 million people living on it. Yeah, a pretty good, uh, sizable asteroid. Um, and yeah, so we get into Miller's perspective, which is more of a, and it's not fully noir, but it is kind of space cowboy detective style, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He's, you know, he, he's a detective on paper and uh, that plays into it all a bit for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, this chapter I feel like is is sort of doing two things again. Like on the one hand, it's introducing us to Miller and, and Havelock as well, I guess. Um, but it's also obviously putting in a lot more work, really establishing uh, the sort of third party in the solar system. You know, we talked a lot mm-hmm. about Earth versus Mars uh, in chapter one. Now we're diving a lot more into the the belt and the people who are now living on the fringes of society uh, in more ways than one. Yep, the belters. Um, so yeah, uh, and uh, the way this chapter starts off is with a bit of belter patois, right? Um, mm. Similarly to how this episode started, and it it really does like it really does feel alien. Like immediately, it's like, oh, this is something that I know about eighty percent of, but the twenty percent that I don't know is just I, I literally could not guess what it means. <laughs> um, and it, it's a great way to start us off because it immediately sells to us, you know, us being humans in the audience that that the belters are different. That there is a cultural divide between us humans and belters. I mean, I say humans. Obviously, belters are humans, but you know what mm. I mean. Uh, what do they call them? Gravity. Uh, oh, well, Wallers, Inuloders, yeah, there's a yeah. bunch of there's a bunch of terms for them. Yeah, exactly. None of them polite. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I I agree. Um, like, and I think you know, basically, Havelock is there, kind of working as the audience surrogate a bit because they sort of leave, and Havelock's like, so what? So what the fuck what was, was going on? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which which is obviously um, great for us, the readers, because as you said, the first time you're reading it, you're like, what is this? Yes. No, it's great. And, and going back, you know, you hear the Miller's explanations of the like two or three phrases that, that Havelock hasn't heard before. And you go back and you're like, oh yeah, that does make sense. Like I can kind of follow the flow of the conversation now. It makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, it's it's a good stuff. It's, it, again, you know, introducing us to more of the stuff in the world, but in a way that feels natural, kind of human, and uh, is uh, a lot more interesting than just kind of learning <laughs> about this in a, in a more clinical way. Yeah. Um, and so let's let's talk about the Miller that we're introduced to uh, mm-hmm. in this chapter, because uh, yep. I I guess I would describe him. You know, there's this whole beat where uh, they sort of talk about how he's good at poker but not good at team sports. I think that's what Miller thinks to himself, um, and I think that's sort of establishing him as a bit of a loner. I guess. Yeah, he's well. I want to pull out the quote of of uh, what it is because Miller doesn't just think that he's a loner. He thinks about how. Havelock isn't good at bluffing or hiding how he's feeling, so he'd be really bad at poker. And then he thinks, Miller was good at poker. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that, that's played with again later when he thinks about how Havelock has a thick skin, is able to laugh at his own expense. Uh, and so, you know, he, he'd, he'd be good at like team activities like team sport, blah, blah, blah. Miller wasn't good at those things. <laughs> yeah. And it's not explicitly saying, you know, Miller's a, a loner. Miller's good at bluffing, Miller's bad at social interactions, but it's it's kind of Miller being able to reflect uh, on Havelock, and then that characterizes him to us based on these kind of little implications that are made. Yeah, you're right. It's 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 really clever, and it, you know, makes you feel like a detective for putting it together. <laughs> it's an easy case, but still one <laughs> worth solving. Uh, yes, yeah. I, I think the other thing as well is we quickly catch on to the fact that, um, you know, unlike Holden, Miller does not think that the the world is sunshine and rainbows yeah um 
he he mentions this joke uh, that exists, which is uh, series doesn't have laws; it has police. Uh, and, and then goes on to sort of say, sometimes people fall out of airlocks. Sometimes evidence vanishes from the lockers. It wasn't so much that it was right or wrong, as long as it was justified. Mm. And um, there's another quote I think earlier where he, he says, "The good thing about organized crime is that it's organized." Yeah. So, like you know, he's not setting himself up to be, um, you know, someone who's always fighting for the side of of you know the good of the law or, or anything. I suppose. Yes. Uh, he it the impression that I got from this first chapter of Miller's is he's like a cog in a system, you know? He he sees this system, this ecosystem of criminals and, and police in air quotes on series, and he's kind of fully aware of it and kind of leans into his role in it. And, and I, you know, he's not heroic. Uh, at least I, you don't get that picture from this first chapter. Um, um, he, he kind of just like wants to play his role in the system. <laughs> and I can totally see there is a situation where if Miller had had different circumstances growing up or whatever, he would just totally be like on the organized crime side and he'd have the exact same philosophy. It would be basically the same character. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, yeah. Yeah. I think I, I really later like chapters that. changed the notion, that notion to me, because we do see that he has a heart, but at the start, it very much is about, there's a ecosystem here and Miller at least really gives the impression of I'm a part of this ecosystem and that's how I like it. Yeah. And he's not going to follow the letter of the law, like to, you know, he's going to do, he's willing to go off book if he needs to, I think is is sort of what it implies to me when he's saying, you know, evidence vanishes, people fall out of airlocks, like who cares? Yes. He's willing to go off book, but the impression I get is he's willing to go off book because that's just kind of the way it's done around here, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Um, um and then yeah. uh, you know obviously i think we spent a bit of time with havelock as well in this chapter um and, and the upcoming ones so i i guess i wanted to get your impression of him as well because you know he comes across as maybe a bit of a schmuck uh in this, yeah, in this chapter i can see that i just i don't i don't feel like it's him being a schmuck i think it's just he is so out of place here right like it, we talk about miller recognizing and enjoying or not enjoying or leaning into his part in the ecosystem and havelock just doesn't Havelock doesn't fit into this ecosystem. He totally is a square peg in a round hole. Like, he doesn't fit in with the belters. He doesn't want to kind of go along with the grey morality, which seems to be how this a society runs on series. He just is so out of his element. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. Like, he's a localised schmuck. Um, yeah, like, yeah. It, it's not inherently him. It's just, he's just not in the right place. And we get so many beats <laughs> of Miller in this chapter and later on just being like, I mean, have a look. What did like? What did you, you expect? <laughs> like, why are you here? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I guess. Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that a bit more as as we go into the other chapters. Yes. Um, chapter four. I think we'll hit. We'll talk more about Havelock as yes. uh, he collapses a bit. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I guess let's talk a bit more about, uh, the belters because, you mm-hmm. know, obviously Miller himself is a belter and this yep. chapter really starts to dive into, you know, the belters and how they're not the same as people, uh, on earth. And I mean, you know, right from the get go, I don't think this book is shying away from, from the metaphor it's building here. Um, one of the first things Miller says to Havelock is, uh, about the belter, um, like Creole that we heard before, mm. um, is he saying that wasn't Belters keeping the Earth guy out? That was poor folks keeping the educated guy out. And you know, I mean, that's I I, I think that's pretty explicitly addressing the metaphor that that the book is really setting up here, which is you know the 
the belters are this sort of lower working class. You know, they're out on the fringes. Um, they're living by the, the skin of their teeth to provide resources for the inners. Mm. Uh, and, you know, they're understandably not impressed with the uh, current political landscape. Yeah, um, they are quite clearly the the oppressed class here, and yeah. it's yeah. I, I guess that's the real function of Havelock here is to demonstrate to us, like this isn't about uh, this isn't about any kind of um, prejudice in terms of the fact that they're thin or look slightly different or anything. Because Havelock isn't, you know, Havelock isn't a super privileged guy. It, he he kind of just stands out because he's not part of the the class that they have here of like they've they've literally been kind of molded to survive in the parts that are the off the off cuts that no one mm. else really wants um and that just divides them yeah and as you say it's that classic thing where you, you know in sci-fi and fantasy you get to take these metaphors and maybe make them a bit more literal so you've got this class divide which is now manifesting itself as a very physical difference between the belters and the earthers you know belters are much taller and skinnier and that physical difference obviously makes it much easier for people to, you know, dis- discriminate with uh, uh, discriminate based on sight because you mm. know you can look at someone and say they're an earther and immediately come to judgments based on stereotypes about that and and you know it's going the same same thing the other way. Yeah, exactly. It yeah, it, it, it's interesting to me because well, here's the thing. I, as I was reading this, I kind of went through. Um, as we were learning more about the Belters, and this kind of uh, applies going forward as well, uh, the 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 Belter culture that we see here, well, I'm kind of I'm thinking back to the to the crew of the Canterbury and trying to think, and I'm pretty sure the only one that we know is a Belter is Naomi. Is that right? I'm I'm pretty sure, yeah. And it's interesting to me to compare the idea of Belter culture that we get here with the picture of Naomi that we get. And I'm trying to kind of reconcile those two things because it is, you know, it, it is a completely different world basically between Miller and Havelock on series. Whereas for Naomi, who's a belter that, you know, travels around with earthers and Martians, right. It, it, it's, there's, there's almost no divide at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I guess we'll have to track, you know, how that goes throughout the rest of the, the story, I suppose. Yeah, I'm just kind of interested to see Naomi's the way Naomi interacts with other belters and the kind of way that she interacts with belter culture because it's something that was interesting to me and kind of I pulled it out of Miller defines belter culture so specifically and so like viscerally here and and throughout later chapters um but it seems to be something that uh, as far as I can tell so far is potentially localized to series or just like the belters that live on these planets as opposed to the ones who travel throughout space it's maybe not as mm. as big of a deal for them i guess the other thing is so far we're only seeing naomi through holden's perspective and he may not necessarily be the most aware of yeah that's fair. what she's going through in that regard yeah. um and yeah like we could talk about that a bit later actually there's there's a good example of that but um yeah i like i also think just one last thing to to quickly mention in this chapter um mm. i love Miller has a quote where he's he's thinking about like inners people from Earth and, and Mars, and he thinks living on the surface of a planet, mass sucking at every bone and muscle, and nothing but gravity to keep your air in close seemed like a fast path to crazy. <laughs> and like I love this as starting to highlight just you, the differences in the way Belters think because you you read that as someone living in the twenty first century now, and you're like, no, living yeah, in a little tube about? out yeah. in the middle of nowhere, spinning on a rock that's trying to throw you off. That's the crazy. Yeah. 
Um, so it's it's really like helping, like immediately, just sort of like why well, these people just think in a very different way to to us. Yeah, I guess the fact that they have like these multiple systems that are needed to keep them alive out here, it kind of leads them to be almost uh, inherently defensive, right? They're kind of turtled away in their little space station. Well, not little, but you know what I mean. No, no, like again, that makes sense to me. Like you know, if you if you were if you were reliant on like external sources of water and air to keep you alive, (laughs) um, that would make you touchy. Um, yeah fair but enough it, again that's something that comes up later yeah. um yeah so so i guess you know um we also this chapter starts to touch on the opa which um you know uh or an or, uh, some sort of belter organization that miller describes as part social movement part wannabe nation and part terrorist network um yeah so there, there's some sort of extremist belter liberation group from the seams of it yeah uh, i mean yeah it's interesting to me um they are framed as, yeah, as somewhere between the line of like a social movement and a terrorist organization, right? Mm. Um, but the only tangible thing that we know about them be- beyond this is this character. I mean, we'll get to this in a second, but Julie has joined up with a, a faction of them, basically, as a kind of um, as a, uh, a human rights activist, basically. Yeah, and and because because that's basically where this chapter leaves off is as as Miller sort of teaches us a bit about the OPA. Uh, we learn that Julie is associated with them, and in fact, uh, Miller's new job, uh, his new case, is to find Julie and send her back to her parents, who have requested that she, you know, they describe it as a kidnap job because um, that's yeah. kind of what it is. Uh, oh, it, it's hundred percent it... <laughs> what it is. It takes someone who who doesn't want to go back home and put them on a ship back home i think he explicitly <laughs> says in a later chapter like tied up on a ship back home yeah yeah exactly um yeah and so of course you know uh again we leave this second chapter also directly tying miller to this overarching plot we're clearly forming yeah. around uh julie and her ship good parenting by the way kidnap hiring somebody <laughs> to kidnap your daughter and bring her home um yeah I mean, well if she's joined a terrorist organization well, is it a terrorist organization though? Because well, yeah. the other bit we get here is Miller thinks, you know, what side would Captain Shadid, his his commanding officer, whatever, his captain, his police chief, yeah, uh, be on if there was an OPA attack? Like, w- he doesn't fully believe that she would be on the side of the law in air quotes, um, and that indicates to me there's more going on with the OPA than than just labeling them as a terrorist organization would. Uh, suggest at first glance yeah i guess i guess we'll see um if they come up i mean they they will obviously julie's associated with them to some degree um but yeah yeah um but yeah miller's an interesting character i I quite like him so far he he's hard to get a beat on he's got some weird sketchy things because he lives in a weird sketchy place right (laughs) things like he he's kind of not fantasizing but like imagining his ex-wife constantly Yes, yeah, uh, he does that a bit more in, in some of the later chapters, but it's a bit yes. like you, you're kind of like, okay, so what's going on here? Yeah, uh, and um, but then kind of the counter to that is he does seem to have this, like, intuition about the, the this ecosystem that he's been a part of for so long on series of he just kind of senses that things are going, uh, uh, kind of going a little weird. Um, which seems to be very accurate based on how later <laughs> chapters unlock. Yeah, in fact, because uh, you're right, that is something I sort of glossed over. Is uh, what what happens before he gets assigned the Julie case is he's 
noticing this pattern where the local organized crime people, you know, some of their people are getting taken out and they're not responding. And that's very odd where they should be protecting their territory more uh, voraciously, but they're not for some reason. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's this kind of like detective's hunch that, that makes him quite likable with the fact that he just kind of has a nose for something going wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. And so that ends chapter two. And now, uh, we head back to Holden for chapter three. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the mission to, to go and look at the Scopuli is, is leaving. Uh, Holden is leaving, Holden is leading, uh, a small team. Uh, he's got Shed, uh, the medic we met in chapter one, uh, in case anyone is still alive on board. Uh, Naomi and Amos are coming in case there isn't, but there's stuff worth stealing. And then lastly, we get the pilot, uh, who is Alex Kamal. Yeah. Um, yeah, a good little crew. Uh, you you don't immediately know that they're going to be the most important crew members on the Canterbury, <laughs> um, but uh, that we'll find about that later. Um, yeah. I think the thing I really liked was the little backstory that we got on Alex's accent because he talks in this like Texan drawl, like he's a cowboy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and the detail <laughs> that that, uh, that Holden goes into that the place on Mars that Alex is from was mostly settled by Eastern Indian, of which I think Alex is. Um, yes, yeah. And Chinese folks and a small amount of Texans, and somehow the Texan accent kind of won out there, and, <laughs> and now everyone like from that part of Mars talks like a Texan, which is, again, like, vivid and evocative and sets up more of the, like, space western kind of vibe that, <laughs> yeah. that these books start to slide into while giving us a very... Uh, funny and I guess realistic explanation for how that happened. Yeah, I, you're, you're right. It just it just personalizes like this huge chunk of Mars that it, it's a bunch of people who I, I think he describes it as the the, the Texan drawl being infectious. Um, and so now you're just picturing this you know melting pot of various cultures that all speak like Texans. Yes, um, which is very fun. Uh, yeah, I think there's a there's a few other really good beats as, as the crew's getting ready. Um, they've been in high G for a while now and. Holden notes like how much it's affecting him to be at high gravity. Um, and, I, and I bring this up just because, you know, for establishing this sort of difference between the belters and, and the mm. inners based on whether they grow up in gravity, mm. it, if Holden's, you know, so affected by short stints in high gravity now that, you know, maybe maybe suggests he's he's starting to turn more one way than the other, or, you know, leave his origins behind a bit, become a bit more belter. Yes. I, I don't think it's as simple as that because... Um... I think the belters are explicitly like injected with drugs that make them work better at low gravity. But I do like that he's kind of, you know, he he's on a ship that is really a melting pot of people from different factions, right? Mm. Well, I say factions, I guess, just backgrounds. You know, we've got a yeah. belter, an earther. Uh, uh, I think Holden is an earther, and Amos is an earther. Is that right? And Shed, yes. I, I don't know. I, um, yeah, yeah. And then Martian, Alex, and so it kind of, you know, as we're starting to see, this story is going to start to talk about um, political consequences to some of the things that we're about to see across, like, the divide between these factions. And so I think it's great that the crew is from all these different factions and Holden is someone who kind of represents a bit of all of them. He he doesn't really fit into any of them very cleanly. So I think it's, mm. it's great to set them up as a kind of independent entity that that is striding the line between all the different factions in this conflict. Yeah, 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 I like that. Um, and then, obviously, I think the other thing that we establish here is uh, something that came up in Chapter 1 is the night, the uh, the shuttle that they're taking. Naomi spent half of Chapter 1 sort of talking about how not 
in good shape it is and like it's technically mm. fine but it's a great it's a great another little bit of tension that it's like okay so we know this ship is not at a hundred percent working yeah. order um and, great you know, <laughs> yeah. luckily we'll only be in it for a few hours <laughs> yeah, yeah of course um yeah, yeah. so I don't know, do you have any other thoughts on this on this little crew I, i'm jumping ahead a little bit but obviously yeah. you know they're, they're going to be the important characters <laughs> i think i think we no, can say. the rest of the crew on the canterbury <laughs> should be around for a while uh no yeah i i i don't know i don't get too much of a read from amos or shed uh so far like they they don't I don't think Amos even has. I mean, he has like four lines. I think in the chapters. Well, they're mostly read. they're mostly like just backing people up or or, or agreeing yeah. with them. Yeah, um, Alex and Naomi, we get more of a beat on. I actually like Naomi's a great character. I really like her. She's she's like uh, if Holden was more competent, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's fun. Uh, Alex, I don't think I have too much of a read on, but I do love that he has a Texan drawl, so it kind of sticks in your head. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, yeah, completely agree. Um, yeah, so okay, so uh, our Motley crew um mm-hmm. ha- sort of reach the Scopuli. Yep. And things are a bit weird. Uh there's breaching <laughs> charges on the side, which doesn't really make any sense because you can't sneak up on people in space uh, yep. yet. Um <laughs> for these few chapters. <laughs> uh there's no bodies, which like Holden begins to think is actually creepier than if there were. Um yeah. So they head down to the engineering deck and it's completely empty. Yeah. So it was the engineering deck where the flesh monster was before, right? Yes. Okay. So it's not here now. So something very spooky is going on, right? <laughs> like I can picture the, uh, well, the TV adaptation, I guess. I was going to say the movie, but then I was like, oh, wait. <laughs> like I can picture the TV adaptation having this moment of, um, you know, we've seen... Uh, Julie Mao approached this one part of the ship and then she turned the corner and there was a flesh monster and Holden's approaching the same part and he turns the corner and the strings start to play and then there's nothing and you're just kind of like, oh, is <laughs> oh. that better or worse? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, which is a bit of a running theme as they explore this ship. Like, <laughs> they keep finding things and it's like, oh, that's not what I expected, but I don't know if it's better. Yeah, it's, is that now is that good? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, and so eventually they find this set of strange devices. Um mm-hmm. But it turns out are actually what's emitting the emergency broadcast, not the beacon from the actual ship. Um, yeah, and which again, as- like what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's basically what Holden's like. Okay, this makes no sense. I was told to leave. If anything seems off, uh, we're leaving. Yeah, it took him a while to be honest. <laughs> I, I mean, there were a few opportunities that he could have done this, and he's kind of there's this beat where he keeps thinking of what Captain McDowell said to him before they left, which is, if you see anything out there that seems off, don't play hero again. I love that it's again, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, just pack up the toys and come home. And it's he thinks this as he, every time he sees something weird, he thinks this and then he thinks, no, it's probably fine. I'll just yeah. keep going. Um, <laughs> until finally he eventually turns around and by this point it's too late. <laughs> so, whoops. Yes. Um, but what I love about this is um, you're expecting the shit to hit the fan for them because uh, he and Amos start to think, Oh, what if there's a second thing? What if this is meant to send a second signal when we find it? And mm. then as soon as they think that, they actually get the uh, the notification from back from the Canterbury. Uh, everyone else is there. Who uh, Captain McDowell radios in and says, uh, we might have a problem. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because basically every chapter in this book ends on a cliffhanger, that's that's where we finish that's up. That's the end. <laughs> yeah, it's rough. Um, yeah, and, and I think this chapter kind of reveals to us that there is more 
political Machiavellian plotting going on here, right? Because, you know, someone must have left that emergency signal device there. Like, someone must have come to this ship, either, like, kidnapped or cleaned up the flesh monster and left this emergency thing, but not just, like, turned on the emergency beacon from the actual ship. So, Mm. like... Obviously, some weird shit is going on that takes a few steps of planning and intrigue. Um, it's There's clearly some Machiavellian plotting happening here, basically, is what this chapter signals <laughs> to me. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I think that's probably a fair read. Um, yeah, like, like, you get, like, all, I love how it just starts to unravel, and you, like, it's, it's definitely at that point in the story where you're just asking more and more questions, mm. and at, at least for me, this is the point where I start to even forget that there was a flesh monster in the prologue. I'm just getting wrapped <laughs> up in the in the human conflict yeah true yeah i i guess there's a lot of um uh, threads to be tugged on right in this mystery and so it kind of starts i think it it takes us down the political thread a lot and we don't ever touch on the flesh monster thread again in these chapters so we'll see (laughs) maybe that flesh monster is just like out there chilling yeah um and then so i to to you know pull my my chapter league quote um, that's semi-relevant. Um, I love this quote that just sort of helps us set up how out of their element humanity kind of is in space. Um, so Holden, when he first finds these beacon devices, he thinks they might be bombs. Uh, and so the, the, the quote from the book is, his heart took a long pause between beats. He called out to Amos. Does that look like a bomb to you? Amos ignored him. Holden turned his radio link back on. <laughs> and then he repeats it again. Um, but like I just I just love that thing. You know, you've got someone standing next to the next to you. So your first thought is, why is he not wait, why is he ignoring yeah, me? And then, ignoring then there's me? that realization of, oh, I haven't turned my radio on. I mean, I you know, the current situation of the world, I've done the same thing on Skype within the last week. I've started <laughs> talking and I've been like, why is nobody listening to me? I was muted the whole time. Yeah. Very um, relatable. <laughs> Yeah, just and it's just you know it's it's showing how out of element out of their element everyone is in space. Yeah, it's it's just a bit more disconnected and a bit more unfriendly out here. Yep, uh, in space, no one can hear you radio about bomb questions. <laughs> you ask if that's a bomb. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, so we enter chapter four. We're jumping back to Miller, um, who's you know settling in for a, a nice uh, dinner of fungal beans. Mm, yum yum. Yes, when he gets a call uh, from a, a bartender friend of his, basically saying that uh, Havelock is drunk and, and looking for a fight uh, yep. with some belters, uh, so Miller heads up to sort of you know calm him down and, and have a chat with him. Yeah, so should we dive into Havelock a bit more? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, sure. He, he's clearly spiraling here, um, and I think like Havelock, the solution to your problem, if I may, is you're clearly out of place here, Havelock. It's starting to go to shit anyway. Just leave. Just go somewhere else, man. <laughs> you do have to wonder what's keeping him here. Yeah. Um. But yeah. Uh. Yeah. So, like, I think, I think what's what's fun about this as well is is the the backdrop of this chapter is very much, um, like some more day to day things that are unique to the Belters. Like I already mentioned, the fungal beans. Um. Miller sort of talks about how most beer on series is light be yeah. just because of the way the cultures have to be grown yeah. um like you know the chapter two taught us a lot about sort of belters and their political stance there's a much more like this is what a day in the life of a belter looks like and and how mm. it's different to you know like a life here on earth yeah it it, it really does bring out more of the just everything's a little bit different here and uh 
you know, um, you might not expect it coming in, but there's enough differences that they all stack up to quite an alien experience overall. Yeah, and I think the the, the highlight for me is uh, there's a moment where Havelock tries to, tries to drunkenly storm off, uh, but because he's used to Earth gravity when he does that, he's kind of pushing down. He's stomping too hard, and so he's kind of hopping across <laughs> the bar. And it's just, it's such a great <sighs> comedy moment. Like, you, yeah, you, you imagine this guy trying to be angrily leaving away, and he's just kind of hopping. Uh, yeah, he can't even get that right. It's hilarious. Yeah. Um, I, I want to pull out something from this chapter, which is, again, Miller is, like, constantly picturing his ex-wife in his head, like, commenting on his actions. And I kind of love this, because it's, like, he must be such a lonely character, but the way he kind of gets around it is by basically imagining a kind of sitcom-esque wife, like the kind of wife you would have in an old 90s sitcom that's like, oh, you, and kind of hates her husband. Um, mm. And in this, it's his ex-wife. And I, almost certainly this is not what she's like at all because they broke up, um, but she's just kind of like sarcastically condemning everything that he does. Yeah, it's interesting how, like, you know yeah it, it's often yeah when he's alone he he has this um this version of candace uh, and you're right she's sort of commenting or, or you know deriding everything he's doing um yeah it's i don't know it doesn't it, strike me as a particularly healthy thing. well yeah i if i could again i'm sitting in my armchair for uh you know psychoanalyzing here but there's this scene when Miller is on the train, I think it, it is, um, and he has this interaction with a father and a little girl, and he, he kind of, the he, the reaction I get to that is he's almost kind of like proving to his fictional, in his head, ex-wife, like, hey, see, look, I can be good with children, right? Which is yeah. potentially something that they broke up over. I don't, I'm Again, I'm reading very deeply into this, but like- He's almost like arguing against this fictional version of her in his head of like, see, we could, we didn't need to break up because I could be good with a two-year-old. Like I'm not inherently broken. And she's just kind of like sarcastically waggling her finger at him. And he's like, hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, which doesn't seem super healthy. He's like hung up on the past in this sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's fair to say. Yeah, and then obviously, like, um, to to sort of bring it forward to what he's going through with Havelock, like, um, you know, he like he sort of gives Havelock the exact advice you've sort of been saying, which is he's just kind of saying to Havelock, "You don't belong here." Yeah. You know, Shadid is never going to like you. Yeah. Um, he's basically in in you know without directly saying it, he's basically saying you should reconsider being here. Yeah, and I mean. It's fair enough. Like, not just, sh- <laughs> like, obviously, Shadid and the other cops, you can kind of blame them for not getting along with him. Um, but, mm. like, he's just never going to be able to do his job effectively because people just won't talk to him the same way that they'll talk to Miller or presumably other belters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, on the flip side, I- I've talked a lot about how, you know, Miller's a bit of a loner and, and you know, not the best person, but he seems yeah. to genuinely want the best for Havelock. He seems like he's a yeah. nice guy. He actually does give you the impression that he's actually quite a kind person in this chapter. In contrast to what yeah. I was saying before, he could have been an organized criminal and it wouldn't be that different. Um, he actually cares here, right? Like it would be easy to, to get the impression that Miller feels like begrudged that he has to kind of take care of Havelock here, but he doesn't, he doesn't, he has this moment of being like, okay, he's my partner. I'll go help him. That's just how it works. But he doesn't begrudge Havelock for this. He kind of genuinely, like takes care of him and we never see him be like 
hey, you owe me one or whatever later on, right? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. He genuinely seems to sympathize for and care for Havelock and kind of relate to him feeling out of place a bit, which is nice. He's a nice, he's a kind person. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, like it, it's it, he's interesting, right? Like he, he there's there's a lot of depth to Miller. Um, yeah, which which I really like. Um, yeah, me too. I find him quite an interesting character so far. Uh, yeah, but then so Miller and Havelock just sort of start to to get to the point where they're having a good time. They've moved to a cop bar um, yep. because Miller wants to quote keep any fights in the family, which I like. <laughs> um, and and yeah, things seem to be going well when uh everyone's terminals go off terminals is just yeah. expense for a smartphone basically yep um and you know they get a, a message from captain shadid that basically seems to imply shit's about to go off yeah everyone uh, in everyone's phone rings at the exact same time and that's never yeah. a good sign <laughs> no it's it's a very like it's a big detective or you know cinematic cliche i suppose yeah um yeah, so Captain Shadid is like, oh, um, you know, I'm going to play for you the video that is about to set off, like, riots or whatever. And yep. all we get to see of the video is uh, some person coming on the screen and saying, hi, I'm James Holden. Yep. And then it just cuts off and it's just a classic. No. A classic cliffhanger. A classic, like, <laughs> a classic way to set up, wow, shit's really gone down more than we thought <laughs> um, because this is way more of a reaction than we expected anything to have. And... We don't know what it's for, but we're going to find out because the chapter starts to change. And you're like, yep, all right, bring it on. What, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, I, like I don't think you could physically put the book down between this Miller chapter and the upcoming one. No, chapter. it's insane. Crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we enter chapter five. Uh, we cut back to Holden and uh, basically he and his crew are, you know, getting out of Dodge. They're leaving the Scopuli as quickly yep. as they can. Yep. Um, the Canterbury, so the, the problem was basically the Canterbury detected this very weak, heat signature that like honestly sounds like it could just be like a gas cloud is there like an era of the instruments or anything yeah exactly but it was just enough for mcdowell to be like no let's call this off um and i, and I like this as like you know we just talked about how we just got it established that there's about to be some real shit going down with holden and then we come back and it's just like yeah i don't know we saw a gas cloud or something so come back um and yeah uh then it turns out they were probably right because this weird yeah. heat signature turns into six ships mm. um, that seem to have some kind of stealth tech. That's what that w- slight warmth they, they saw was. Uh, and these ships also fire a bunch of missiles at the Canterbury. Yep. Um, so immediately things get ratcheted up to 11. We kind of th- expected, I think, things to go badly on the Scopuli, but actually that was fine. <laughs> like The things went shit out there, which is a nice little um, sleight of hand that I quite liked. Yes, um, and I think this is our first real action chapter, and yeah. I want to talk about that because it feels like an action chapter, and you're tense right. in the way that you are for an action chapter. Yeah, um, they barely leave their chairs. No, for, it's for the whole it's an action chapter that is just kind of <laughs> countdowns, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's like I, like I really love this. It's like all this frantic like brainstorming, and there's this hopelessness. And as you said, like I think what really drives it is there's countdowns all over the shop for when we can do this, when we can do that. Yeah, and it's amazing how it creates this sense of like a really tense action scene, despite, um, you know, for the, for the most like you know within the ships, no one's really moving in fact half of them are knocked out for most of it yeah not not only are they not doing anything they kind of can't do anything right like yes <laughs> yeah it's a situation where it's like oh we just kind of have to sit here and see what happens and that's our only real action we can take right now yeah they spend most of it planning for what they're gonna do after, after the pirates yeah. have, have disabled uh yeah. the the canterbury yeah um we also get introduced to the juice uh which is this this uh very fun concoction which 
can keep you awake during hygiene maneuvers when humans yeah. would normally pass out due to lack of blood flow. Yeah, um, that's, and, that's healthy. Yeah, exactly. Like It's arguably not that much better than passing out because basically what it does is just, it. it's like a, you know, intense extra, like, you know, 2.0 version of an adrenaline shot um, mm. that's basically just designed to keep you so, your, your blood so hyper pumping uh, that you literally can't pass out. Um, so it's not a fun experience. I, I just really like it as a device to kind of, you know, we're talking about how tense it is in their chairs. It's because literally their hearts are being fueled to pump like very hard and very fast. Yeah. 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 I like that actually. I didn't make that connection of like, they're literally being injected to make them more tense to match the tension of the scene. <laughs> but I think that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. And, and the description really sells it. Like the way Holden sort of mentions that like, as they hit the high G and the juice kicks in, um, you know, he, the nerves at the back of his eyeballs scream under the weight of his mm. eyes. Um, I mean, that's very vivid. That worked on me. I, I like, you know, I blinked a couple of times after reading that. I didn't like it. Yeah, no, it's rough. Um, yeah, it just, it, it is kind of nauseating. It starts to set the stage for this being more horrific than you expect. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so the the Canterbury prepares to be disabled by the torpedoes and boarded by pirates. Yep. Um, and that isn't quite what happens, because the torpedoes are a little bit more powerful than they were expecting. They were all nuclear, and so six nuclear charges go off, and uh, the Canterbury is reduced to its component atoms. Yes, it is completely vaporized, um, which is rough. Uh, I... I it's obviously horrific right um mm. i i i want to talk about though the way holden kind of feels during this chapter because it's so for an action chapter as we've talked about it's so impotent like it it escalates or or like degenerates i guess from first okay let's get back in time and we can help out okay no we're not going to get back in time let's like be ready so that we can help out afterwards oh okay maybe let's go on the other side and just kind of let people know that what's going on the other side of this asteroid so we're safe and so we can kind of be a bargaining chip in this conflict to eventually he, he goes under the juice and he can't even talk right the, he can interact by like clicking his radio and that's it um yeah. and he so he's completely impotent and just listens as everyone dies which is horrifying yeah the way he's like plugged into arde's uh voice channel so he hears this last gasp yeah uh is is yeah. heartbreaking um, yes you're right like it's an action chapter where they don't do anything and in fact they couldn't have done anything yeah it kind of uh, defines itself by how impotent holden is in this whole scene yeah more of a disaster chapter than a than an action chapter i suppose yeah yeah um and I guess, like, you know, we've talked a bit about how Holden is very clued into everyone and getting the best out of them and, and sort of talking around maybe he has some natural leadership skills. And mm -hmm. uh, he, he's forced to kind of step up as the captain uh, now that McDowell and, and the rest of the Canterbury crew have passed. Yeah. And, um, I mean, he kind of blows it, right? Because his first act yep. is, is to uh, send pictures of all the dead people uh, at the ships um, that are coming at them, which gets them like a warning laser painted on them as well yeah um which is just like it's just a, you know i think naomi and the rest of the crew come up at this point they're like what are you well what are you doing it seems like a stupid move but i actually think it was it worked out pretty well like for them that was fine it was bad a bad decision but it actually worked out the worst decision is the next one that he makes yeah okay um well i'll get into that uh so um Basically, after, you know, the, the ships kind of give them a warning, hey, stop sending us pictures or, or we'll shoot you. 
Yeah. Uh, the ships all start to leave, leaving them, you know, presumably to, to sit here and die. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Alex comes down and sort of mentions to Holden that this stealth tech is not like pirates don't have this. This is very high grade. Um, Mars was actually working on it uh, when uh, Alex was in the Navy, which wasn't even that long ago. Uh, and if Mars has it, Earth probably does too, because that's how these sort of Cold War situations tend to work. Mm. Um, so they, they pull apart the beacon that they've rescued from the Scopuli, and uh, they find MCRN, which is the Mars Congressional Republic Navy, mm. uh, you know, logos all inside the beacon. And yep. uh, so outraged, uh, Holden broadcasts to the solar system uh, all the evidence he has, you know, because, you know, the Canterbury's been blown up, Here's evidence that the MCRN was involved. Yeah, um, but it's important to point out, like, the way that his broadcast starts is something like, I'm James Holden and my ship was destroyed by a Martian whatever, right? Um, Yes, well, I mean, that's something that comes up a lot over the next few chapters is exactly how he phrased it. Yeah, Um. it's it's such a stupid thing to do. Like, (laughs) because looking at this situation, and Holden has this thought, right? He has the thought of why would they do this? Like, what possible reason is there to do this? And so he gets like 95% of the way through the chain of thought without finishing it off, which is obviously there's no reason to do this for piracy reasons. There's no reason for them to do it. You know, maybe one reason for them to do it is to prevent witnesses from something, from whatever happened to the Scopuli. Maybe that's a reason, except they explicitly left Holden and his crew alive, right? So it can't be that. Yeah. So literally the only other thing that it could be is they want witnesses to something. They want, they want witnesses to some atrocity which is like starting a war one-on-one, right? <laughs> and and Holden plays right into the hand by saying, oh, yeah, you want people to know what happened here? Well, I'll tell everybody, and I'll tell them in the most, you know, uh, aggravating and, and likely to make them jump to conclusions way possible. <laughs> like, it's... You can forgive him. He's not thinking clearly, obviously, but it's like, it's so clearly doing exactly what the people who just murdered all your friends want you to do, Holden. <laughs> Uh, yeah, interesting, interesting. Because yeah, I mean, uh, at this point we cut back to series, uh, which is dealing with the after the aftermath of um Holden's response, and uh, as you say, it, it basically seems to be gearing up to start a war. Yeah. Um, Miller and Havelock uh, are racing back to prepare for the riots. Um, yeah. And Havelock, like, it's this really interesting conversation where Havelock, and, and you know, as you imagine, Holden as well. Doesn't really comprehend like the consequences of this broadcast. Like Havelock has has watched it and he's like, "What? Why is this going to start a war?" Yeah, I, I didn't even fully comprehend it. But the fact that it's an ice freighter is explained to us as so significant, and it, it makes sense after it's explained. But it's so it's even more of like Holden, even more so. It was a terrible idea. Like what a mistake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um. And yeah. So Mill sort of explains to Havelock that you know Belters through generations of living in a situation where the tiniest environmental problem can just kill everyone on your station or ship or whatever. They've basically been, you know, trained to not take that shit at all. Mm. Um, like, like, Miller talks about this um, example where basically the police were investigating a murder. They found out the guy was tortured and murdered because he fucked with the air filtration system. And so the whole police force was just like, well, Case nothing closed. to see here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like you know basically just you know giving that sort of behavior the okay like in belter culture torturing and killing someone is perfectly fine if they're fucking with the environmental system and it kind of makes sense given how important it is um yeah and, and you know it's really continuing to establish this kind of lawful 
neutral Miller. Like, I think we're starting to see this shape of him. Like, he wants to work for the greater good, and he doesn't necessarily believe that the war and the police are the way to do that every time. Like, they have a purpose. As you said, he's a cog in this machine, and sometimes the best way for him to do that is to be enforcing the war, and sometimes it's not, and he does whatever he thinks is is servicing the greater good at at the right time. Yeah, which... Yeah, I mean, kind of fair enough. I, like, there's clearly <laughs> yeah. a pretty complex balance of organizations just on series, not to mention the entire galaxy. And I kind of can respect Miller's perspective on this. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and like, I just, but I, I love the way this co- whole conversation is framed is just how Belters just think differently to Earthers. And, you know, Holden and Havelock just didn't quite get this. And it really frames it as this idea of, like, you know, the poor versus the rich, like, just the way the Belters treasure these resources and their access to them so much more. Whereas if you've grown up where water falls out of the sky is how Miller phrases it, which is just a way I've never thought about like rain before. Um, Like, you know, it just frames that different way of thinking. (laughs) Like they've had to, they've had to buy and purchase every breath of air and every drop of water their whole life. So they think about it in a very different way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's they never had the chance to take these things for granted, right? Mm, mm. Yeah, um, yeah. It it really like Miller's the first half of Miller's chapter here is basically saying to us as non-belters, no, no, it's even worse than you thought. Like, <laughs> le- yeah. learn about how belters value all of these things, and then learn about how defensive they would be naturally, and then imagine this thing happening and see how bad it's actually going to get. Um, yeah, you're right, because Miller basically says, we will attack any threat to our environment systems. And Holden has basically gone on a public broadcast and say, Mars is blowing up ice haulers and threatening your water supply. Yeah, which, yeah, I mean, obviously it's bad. And, and even the first Miller chapter was basically setting up the idea that Ceres is a bit of a, like, a, a powder keg waiting for a spark to set it off. And again, I'm like, oh yeah, what? of course it's going to be terrible because it's not only is it clearly intended to start a war, but these are the reasons that are going to make it even worse than we initially might have thought. Yeah, you're right. This this chapter is just like, you know, throwing more on the pile. Exactly. Um, so so uh, Havelock and uh, Miller make it to sort of the police headquarters. Yep. They get a bit of a brief. Um, much like Holden, Miller finds himself put in charge uh, of a small team. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually sits out the more problematic elements. Like he, he tells Havelock, just don't come. We don't need an Earth. That's harsh. <laughs> but no, uh, yeah. Again, I feel bad ha- for Havelock because it is just like he's just so not useful, despite whether he's a good cop or not, which I think Miller actually thinks that he probably is a good cop he's just so not in the right place <laughs> he's not a good cop on series yes yeah. exactly um yeah anyway and then so they go to put on all their riot gear and uh it's not there Uh-oh. um so they're forced to put on the SWAT gear like the killing outfits yeah um uh, which you know of course is going to help calm everyone down well yeah like I, when i first thought of this i was like oh this is a cool beat of like Things are going worse, again, even worse than you thought. But then I thought about it and, like, the fact that there's clearly a political plot to start a war, potentially these missing riot suits are a piece of that. Like, if riots end up getting more violent than they normally would and the police isn't able to as effectively prevent it, that that would help along this war that is potentially being started. Um, So I, I wonder whether this riot gear is, 
like a, just a, a casualty of, I don't know, corruption or like whatever accidents that happen or whether it's something more serious and it's like this is a this is explicitly a beat in the chain um yeah i mean i think miller quickly thinks in this chapter on like the governor and where the governor might stand in an OBA takeover yeah um so yeah uh so anyway they head out in their like swat gear kind of armed to the teeth um and they run into a crowd uh you know in their patrol um, who, you know, all just stand and watch this OPA guy uh, beat a woman to death for working for a Martian freighter. That's, um, a, that's a crime punishable by death, I reckon. Um, yeah, because I, I think, like, it's never actually stated she's Martian or she's an Earther. I think it's kind of left hanging. She's yeah. a belter working for Martians. Yeah, it's just the fact that she's wearing a uniform, possibly, that is enough yeah. To, to... Yeah. Um, so, you know, with some smooth words and a quick bullet to the murderer's kneecap, uh, Miller kind of talks the crowd down yeah, uh, and then arrests the, the man that, you know, he had shot. Yeah, it's great. Like, he does a really good job here. Like, two thumbs up to Miller. He manages this situation very, very well. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, you kind of referred to Miller earlier as lawful neutral in our notes, right? Mm. And I love that. It's It's... And it's not even necessarily that it's following the law that he cares about, because it's not necessarily that people follow the law. What he cares about is that people don't rock the boat. Like, his prime directive seems to be maintain a calm, stable equilibrium, and anything that that displaces that equilibrium equilibrium is a problem, and so I need to correct it. Yeah, I guess going back to that, you know, it's a bit of a metaphor for the, the water and the air, right? Like, uh, Yeah. The belters need to keep their ecosystems very stable because, you know, one thing in an air filter can cause everyone to suffocate. One, one problem person can stuff things up for everyone. Um, yeah. Yeah, I really, I really like that way of looking at it. Um, I also think, like, this whole ethos is just so perfectly captured by he, the, the words that he says to this guy as he's arresting him. He sort of looks down at this guy who's, like, whelping as his, like, you know, kneecap is still bleeding. Both knees, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. And Miller says to him, you are under arrest for the murder of that lady over there, whoever the hell she is. You are not required to participate in questioning without the presence of an attorney or union representative. And if you so much as look at me wrong, I'll space you. And I love how this this speech begins kind of echoing the the Miranda rights. Yeah, the Miranda that, rights, you know, yeah. Are a bit of, are a bit of a trope from like you know we all know them from movies and tv the sort of you know you have the right to remain silent blah blah yeah. that's a very like official lawful thing and then he, he sort of devolves into if you give me the wrong impression i'm just gonna kill you yeah and and it's just like yeah so it's like you know he, he's he's gonna follow the rules but if you fuck with him he'll just kill you yeah it starts out very official and kind of deteriorates as it goes doesn't it yeah, yeah. It's such a great encapsulation of just the way Miller is going to treat um, problems like this. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And so then we head into the final chapter that we're going to be covering today, uh, Chapter 7. Uh, from back in Holden's perspective, mm-hmm. uh, he's on the night, uh, the crew's hanging out, and they're basically awaiting orders from the company that they work for, which is Pure and Clean Water Company, yep. um, to figure out where they go from here. Because at the moment, they are right in the middle of Jupiter and uh, the asteroid belt. Um, so they're in like the middle of nowhere, about as far from anything as you can get. And now they just have to sit here and wait for orders from their corporate 
uh, headquarters. Yeah, and I was I was starting to question whether this was actually science fiction because it didn't have any anti-capitalist sentiment in it. But thank God we get some here because <laughs> otherwise it wouldn't be proper science fiction. Um, which is, of course, one of the reasons I love it as a genre so much. <laughs> yeah, I mean the horror of watching your crewmates die and like being stranded out in the middle of space, and really before you do anything, your main option yeah. is that you have Let's to check radio the employee handbook first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's more horrifying than the flesh monster in the prologue <laughs> <sighs> yeah um, uh but yeah I, I, there's there's an interesting dream holden has here that i, that I wanted to call out um where he, he sort of it's like a half dream i guess it's as he's trying to use um like a drug cocktail to go to sleep yeah um he thinks about like the cant and how it was his home and you know how he was probably going to spend many more years there and it's interesting how this echoes with the conversation he had with Arde in in chapter 1 mm. um where she was basically saying you're at home here and he's like oh I could leave whenever I want and and now they're <laughs> all dead including Arde and and he's thinking on her and then he's thinking that was my home and I was probably going to stay there you know forever yep she was right the whole time um <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Uh, we get beats, like he's kind of, we get beats throughout the, this part of the chapter where people are uh, criticising his his decision to send that out. And again, it just feels like he's a bit naive. But he, I, I do feel much more for him. Like my heart opens up for him after the tragedy that he has just encountered. Yeah, you can forgive him for not thinking straight at that yeah. point. yeah. Yeah, there is an interesting beat that kind of echoes what we saw between uh, Holden and Havelock. Sorry, m- with Miller and Havelock. There was mm. that, you know, the start of last chapter, there was the Belter versus Earth away thinking. And we do kind of get that again where uh, Naomi at one point is like, well, you did say that Mars blew it up. And he's like, no, I didn't. And yeah. she's like, yeah, you did. You kind of did, right? Like, <laughs> um, you but did, like well, Havelock, you said- <laughs> Havelock said the same thing. Like, it's, 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 it's this different way of thinking. Like, the way Holden opened it up to all the Belters seems to have said, Mars attacked us, whereas, you know, all the Earthers are sort of like, okay, so he thinks Mars might have I don't involved. know. I don't know about that. <laughs> like, if his broadcast was, our ship was blown up, and here's all the Martian evidence that we saw that says that they did it, but I'm just going to let you make your own conclusions. Like, <laughs> I don't know. That's not, that, like, yes, I'm sure the people who are, like, the most affected by this, like, the political council on Mars and Earth and whatever are going to be analysing that a bit more than just trusting his word for it but 95 percent of people will just be like oh mars did it okay cool let's react as though that is the case because that's the impression that he has clearly presented yeah i i agree um but yeah so then there's this interesting bit where holden starts to uh, you've already brought this up he starts to actually think about like why yep. would they have done this yep great it's great that you think about this more now <laughs> <laughs> um and just as he's starting to think about that they get word back from the legal team of pure and glean uh who basically you know jump on the pile of people telling him that broadcast was a fucking dumb idea yep um and then they are told that they should wait to be picked up by the martian navy ship the donager mm-hmm. um which will be coming over from jupiter basically pick them up for some more questioning um the team who do themselves believe that Mars is the one who did it Yes. Uh, you know, as you'd expect, kind of unimpressed with the idea of being handed to the Martian Navy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, so they come, up, they come up with a sneaky plan to uh, make sure that they aren't just disappeared and tortured. Yeah, which is the old James Holden special. Send out a broadcast. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> He's great. He's basically like, a oh. Twitch streamer, right? He's just, like, live streaming <laughs> his life. 
or justin.tv <laughs> i guess not twitch um but yeah it's yeah i don't know <laughs> like that, obviously the first broadcast was a mistake for so many reasons this one i'm a bit more on board with like they're in such a terrible position they clearly have nothing to do so he's kind of like just fucking them over if they kill him which yeah yeah fair enough um it's kind of a an a thing that will implicate mars no matter what because like what amos thinks is going to happen next is they're just going to force him to retract his statement by torturing him and there's no way for people to not immediately think that that will happen even if mars is like oh no it wasn't us and we're super sorry and here like we'll pay reparations and shit and they treat them perfectly and holden's like oh okay i better put out a statement that says that mars is actually super chill people are obviously going to be like well we can't trust that like no matter yeah, what yeah. he's painted them into a corner it's a bit too late um so a bit of a lose-lose but i guess it's their best option i don't know it's a good one for keeping them alive in in theory um yeah maybe not for fixing the broader situation yeah. but for keeping them alive uh, it's probably a smart play yeah <sighs> um but but yeah so after um broadcasting these plans to everyone that they're going to go with the donager and you know they're fine with it um Alex pipes up because he's keeping an eye on the situation and he notes that uh, six small ships have just uh, reappeared and are burning very hard towards them. Yeah, Um, but not the same ships. Like, it's kind of explicitly confirmed these aren't the same six ships, right? No. uh, No, I mean, he doesn't say they're the six same ships. Um, But they are going to arrive uh, at their location two days before the Donager. Yeah. And uh, James just looks at them and says... So who the fuck are you? And that's that's where we're yeah that's where we're leaving off today. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the fact that there are six ships is interesting. It obviously <laughs> matches the six that were there before, which is a little bit dangerous. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think it's the same ships. I just got the sense that it wasn't. I, I'm kind of looking at this and I'm thinking, okay, we've already got Mars and uh, the Belt kind of explicitly tied into this. The other faction that we haven't seen yet is Earth, so maybe it's six Earth ships and that's something, or maybe it's like more explicitly tying in the OPA, I'm not sure, but I, I get the sense that this book series is about a war brewing between these factions, and so let's just tie all the factions in early off, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, make it a hot mess right yeah, exactly. from the start. Set it up nice and messy. Um, yeah, so I, I suppose we'll have to wait and find out if this show gets gets picked up for season. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we go, uh, mm. I just wanted to do a bit of a bonus bit. Whoa. So bonus bits are something we did in Deep Impact. And um, if if we, we go on with this one, I had some ideas for bonus bits uh, relating to the science of the Expanse because I find the realism um, so much fun to play with in the Expanse. Yeah. And uh, I, I wanted to talk about a bit of it. Um, yeah. So cool. Take us through it. What are we talking about? So today I, I wanted to talk about spinning up an asteroid because um, obviously, you know, we learn Miller lives on Ceres, which is an actual real asteroid. Oh, okay, cool. In the asteroid belt. Um, and, you know, so it's set up in the book that it was spun up so that people could live on it. And I guess I just wanted to go through the science of, of how that might work. Yeah. Is it possible? Yes. Yeah, so it's an interesting question. Um, Ceres is actually the biggest asteroid in the asteroid belt that's a mm. fun fact it's it's technically a dwarf planet in fact it was considered a planet at one time but mm. um it's, it's below pluto but you know it's, it's getting there um in fact it's the only asteroid in the asteroid belt that is like spherical due to its own gravity like it's the only asteroid that's gravity is strong enough to, to like force it, a sphere, it into yeah. a spherical shape yeah um it, it, it's about like a thousand kilometers or if you live in a 
you know, one of those countries that uses miles, 600 miles. Mm. So it kind of makes sense that they target it first because it's one of the biggest ones. Mm. Um, yeah. So basically the, the way, you know, the way gravity works on, on things like series, especially in the expanse is you, you do spin gravity, which is kind of the opposite. So, you know, here on earth, gravity pushes us in and that's just basically all the mass of the earth, like sucking us down. Um, spin gravity is like the opposite with spin gravity, you spin something and that's pushing you outwards. So like in a spin gravity situation, like series, you're actually standing inside the sphere and you're being pushed out outwards uh, away from it. Yeah. Um, so in the series, it, it, it said that, that series, that was terrible phrasing. Um, in, in the books, it's in the, <laughs> wait, yeah, in the series in, or in the series. Sorry. Uh, I mean, in the book series. Right. Uh, series the station. I'm going to stop using the word series uh, in terms of in the books. Yeah. Uh, series station has a, a gravity of about 0.3 g, like one g being what we have on Earth. Yeah. Um. So th- the real life asteroid has a gravity of 0.03. So basically, mm. the spin gravity is like ten times what its natural gravity would be. Yeah. Um. And zero point. Uh, well, 0. it would have 3, to be like, eleven times. Right to counteract. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. The first so, time as well. Yes, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Math. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's actually fun. Fun fact, because um, you know, we, we, the book talks a lot about how belters, you know, grow up differently. Um, there's been a few references to Luna, like the Earth Moon, and and some mm. people, you know, live and work there. Yeah. Um, the Moon actually has a gravity of about 0.17 g, so it's like mm. actually about half as much as Ceres. So series in the books actually has twice as much gravity uh, for growing up as than people get on the moon, mm. um, which is interesting considering that a lot of the you know bigoted stuff directed at inners tends to go towards people from Luna as well. Mm. Kind of kind of proving that it is much more a class thing than a yeah. physical thing. Um, but yeah, so basically to talk about spinning up the asteroid, you've got this rock um, series, and basically. You want to spin it up, but the problem you're going to run into is, you know, as you start to spin it and things are accelerating outwards, uh, you're going to hit what's called the Roche limit, which is essentially that point where things are getting pushed out more than they're getting pushed in to the point where they just start to break off. Mm. So that's a factor of like how much things are being pushed in, but also like how strong the asteroid is, you know, like if, yeah. Yeah. if the asteroid's made out of sand versus um, like one solid rock, it's it's got a much higher Roche limit because yeah. it's going to stay together longer. Yeah. So would Ceres be able to spin that fast without breaking apart? Not in its current state, because uh, it is about 60% various rocks and minerals and about like 30 to 40% water. Mm. Uh, well, ice, ice out there. But yeah. um, basically, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on there that basically is like, you know, no, pretty much no naturally occurring thing is probably going to hit that 11x uh, that we talked about spin and yeah. not just start to break apart. Yeah. Um, and... So, you know, they do say in the books that, you know, Tycho had spent an entire generation figuring out how to do this. Um, so, you know, I, I saw some talk online about, like, what you could do to make this more possible and the mm. stuff about, you know, melting the surface so the outer shell has a high Roche limit and hoping that's enough to keep the middle in place. Um, you know, putting support structures through it all. Um, most people seem to think it would actually just be easier to just build those metal supports, like, kind of set up a mining station on series and use that to build the actual station that spins and everyone lives on rather than hollowing out the actual asteroid. Mm. Um, but yeah, at least it's kind of like, you know, it's one of those points where the, the science is real enough to the point where you say, okay, this is maybe all possible. I think yeah. somebody did, 
somebody actually did the math on how much thrust Epstein drives generate right. um, based on details later. And yeah. they said it was like 200 Epstein drives for 10 years would be able to spin series enough. Interesting. So, <laughs> okay. Um, so like, yeah, it's sort of all there. The, the questions in real life about whether it's actually the best way to build a station like this. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but like, it is you know, feasibly it, possible, plausible. Uh, perhaps yes is, is sort of the, the result. Um, I just wanted you know, to it, tell me which stamp with the Mythbusters, the Mythbusters stamp on it if they would, did an episode on uh, it. If I had to give it one, I'd probably say no. Um, oh, you'd give it a busted. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, I would. Busted. Oof, um, but it is much more fun as a setting. So, okay. like, I'll give it, I'll give it, you know, the, the um, what is it, poetic license uh, waiver. <laughs> You got to either stamp with, I think, plausible or busted, Elliot. It's got to be one okay, of the other. I'll have to give it busted, unfortunately. Oof, uh, unless we get more details about what Tycho did for that generation that they were All right. uh, working. Um, it, it seems unlikely. Um, well, if it's busted, I guess we might as well just stop the pilot here. We're not going <laughs> to continue this one. I'm sorry. Unrealistic. Can't yeah, carry it on. Bad one to start. Um I, I just quickly like a fun fact about spin gravity that I wanted to bring up, and the, oh, yeah. the the books sort of touch on it, but it's probably not clear to most people. Um, when you're in spin based gravity, mm. the th- the thing about like gravity of that form is it's the thrust that you're getting outwards depends on how far away you are from the center. Yes, so, like if you're if you're like in you know so series uh, Miller constantly talks about how many levels there are. Yeah, if you're on one of the upper levels, which is closer to the middle of the station there's actually less gravity than there is on the lower levels right. which is like where all the yeah. ships are taking off and stuff um and that's all to do with like centrifugal forces and stuff um but it also as you're getting closer to the center the change you know is proportionally higher mm. right if that makes sense so it's kind of like when you're on one of those very high upper levels the difference in the gravity felt by your feet and your head is oh. like potentially actually noticeably different. Wow. And and Miller touches on this. He calls it the the Coriolis effect, which um, you know, has like a different meaning here, but you can see why it, it is called the Coriolis force um mm. in in physics. So you can mm. see why, you know, the why belters would move it to which, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, so the, the Coriolis like in those higher levels is to the point where your feet and your head when you're standing up have different amounts of gravity to the point where you feel it tugging at you like sideways that's so Um, weird and that's why miller actually starts to feel sick up there and i think he says havoc's dealing with it even worse than he was yeah um and that's why those upper levels are kind of the the even where the poorer neighborhoods on series because nobody wants to live up there so that's like that's the sort of side effect of living in spin gravity and there's you know there's all sorts of information online if you're interested on like how big a spin station needs to be before the Coriolis forces won't be upsetting for people trying to live in it. It's yeah. like a couple, couple of hundred um, meters at least from the from the sounds of it. Yeah. Mm, interesting. Damn. Yeah. So, that, so that's just some some fun spin gravity facts for you uh, in you this go. bonus bit. Science faction. We call that. <laughs> oh god, that is the name of that bit from now on. That's too good. Um, why did? Where were you? Where were you a few hours ago when I was writing the yeah, script? So was, Ruben? So was... <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's all we have for you today on uh, Melota ARD Expanse. Yeah. Um, if you, again, if you like this pilot, uh, let us know through the Google form. Yep. Because uh, that's what we're using to to figure out where we go once uh, Pale Reflections, our current show, uh, finishes up.
Yeah, um, that form lets you rate the shows and let us know what you thought of them. Tell us anything you'd like to change or keep the same, all that good stuff. Of course, you can also get onto the Doof Media Patreon Discord and leave us your thoughts there in the hashtag pilot-season channel. Yes. Uh, so, you know, becoming a patron gets you all sorts of great benefits. Uh, there's tons of stuff on the Doof Network. Uh, go go check it out. You get to vote and tons of things, and it, it's, it's a lot of fun. Discord's great. Um, there's, you know, so many other shows on the Doof Network worth checking out as well. Not to suit our own horns, but Power Reflection just mm, started. I think it's going show. okay so far. Go check it out. Yeah, the first <laughs> episode I thought was pretty good, and there'll be another yeah. one every week. Yes, uh, and Pale itself is very good, so you should read that, even if you don't listen. Uh, yeah, to I mean, if you're yeah, if you're listening to this, you probably already are on the same feed with Power Reflection, so you're probably in a good spot. That's a good point. I forgot about that. Yes, it's <laughs> it's already here. Um, and if you're listening to this and you're still here and you're wondering why we're not talking about Pale uh, until right now, an hour and a half in, um, <laughs> this is almost the last pilot season, so it'll yeah. just be Pale Reflection stuff after this, I promise. Yeah. We have one more pilot uh, to get to, which is next week. We are doing the Doof uh, Media Variety Show, um, which is a live spectacular where we have dial-in guests, we have um, special guests from across Doof, we'll be playing games, we'll be doing all kinds of cool hangouts. If you want, you can uh, call in and potentially win a game if you uh, win a game against one of our special guests and win a prize. So, um, yeah, if you want more info on that, head to the Discord because it's all in there and uh, or stay tuned, I guess. And actually, maybe we'll post the form that lets you sign up to be a call-in guest as well so you don't have to be a patron to sign up. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll put that in the link. Uh, we'll put that link in the show notes below. Um, that that thing's very much Ruben's baby. I'm Hell looking yeah. forward to it. I'm I'm helping out a bit, but yeah, uh, the producer some of the stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those like executive producer things where it's mostly just you know because I was there. <laughs> um, I, like I'm going to be helping out a bit on the day, but Ruben's put all the work into planning this and like looking at what we've got planned. It's going to be a lot of fun. fun. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait. Ruben's killing it. Yeah. Um, so. Really, come and check it out if you can. Uh, yep. The guests we've got lined up are great as well. Yeah, we we have uh, Elise Daly from What You Say on the Doof Media Network and her husband, Scott Daly, also from some other shows on the Doof Media Network who will be tuning in. Um, so come and check it out. It'll be a good time. Yeah. Uh, and so on that note, uh, we're going to finish this pilot, as we always do, uh, with Ruben's sign-off phrase. Yep. Oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. You really flipped it around on me. Um, yeah. Uh, my classic sign-off, which is stay frosty, ice haulers. Nice. See ya. <laughs> oh, why didn't I expect that? <laughs>